History, Lecture 84, Rabbi Blyweis. Today we're going to look at a lot of great Rishonim from, maybe you can call this the middle period of the Rishonim, but in terms of names that come up a lot in the course of our learning, one finds the period of the Rishonim sort of top-heavy, meaning the big names really are sometimes the earliest names that we've seen already, the Rif, the Rambam, the, R- the Rashi, the Balitosphos, the Ramban, um, and, and certainly the names we're going to say today. And as the years progress, there's some great figures. They're not quite as prominent. You don't hear the names as much, um, which is indicative of uh, something's going on in this period. I don't have any... Uh, I don't have a clear way of, of, of explaining it exactly. Um, and it's one of these perceptions that's not clear cut, like what makes a person greater as a guttle than another person, but clearly there's some names that are, you know, there are very few who can, who can match the Rambam, for example. And one doesn't find that as, as the years pass and the period that we still consider the Rishoni up until the 1400s or so, um, so, so just in the later period, we don't we don't find as many uh, major personalities, and that may have something to do with the perception that this, this what we call the Rishonim is sometimes Yitzchak Berkowitz refers to it as the last generation with a certain kind of ruach hakodesh that they had they were still a part of the ongoing Masira. And once you turn the corner and you get to the period that we call even that we still consider today the Achronim. It's a different ilk. It's a different, different kind of, of, of transmission. And maybe if that's true, then, then that's reflected by early on, you're going to have a lot more of it. And as the years pass, the tap is slowly turned off, as it were. That's my image, and it's not yeah, scientific. But even, like, but even in like the 1700s, there's still, even in the 1800s, there's still some supernatural stuff going on. Oh, for sure. Oh, I, I, that's a different time. All clear I, I, stuff for sure. Listen, World War II. Uh, uh, the world that we live in is full of miracles. I'm not. Des- I'm, I'm, but I'm describing a very specific, I feel like the whole abstract was like a trigger. It was like a, there's was something like, there, but I'm describing something else. Some very specific abstract mystical, mystical exaltedness, specifically in the area of Torah, specifically in the area of godless of understanding that um, one finds more prominence early on. But uh, today we'll certainly be blown away with some of the names that I'm going to mention. I'll start with one of the great names of all times, Rav Shlomo Benaderis, the Rashba. The Rashba, one of the primary Rishonim. His dates are 1235 to 1310. Uh, he was in Barcelona. Uh, his Rebbe, his major primary Rebbe is actually Rebbe Yona, who we met. Uh, but he also learned by the Ramban. So that's uh, pretty good as was far as pedigree. Was there between Rambam and Rambam? I know there's a difference, but like in terms of age when they lived. No, I mean like in terms of what they did. You know, the Rambam, Shachanarah. Oh, how do you summarize it? I mean, these are these are two oh, of the Mishnah biggest. Mishnah Torah. What? Shachanarah. No. Mishnah Torah. Brach is Mishnah Torah is an earlier halachic code. It's true that Rav Yosef Karel's Shulchan Aruch will draw heavily from the Mishnah Torah, but they're totally different, and we keep keep those two, you know, clearly distinguished in your mind. Um, to answer the question properly, I think the best thing I can do, maybe it's a bit of a cop out, but go back and listen to my tapes. No, it's I mean, all up. It's all up and available to you. I, I can't give a short answer. The shortest answer I gave you was the hour-long shir I gave in the Rambam, and the well, I mean, no, I, mean, I did like, spend about an hour, maybe a little less, in the Rambam. No, I mean, like in terms of, in terms of like you know, crown achievement. Ain't of is it? We're gonna listen at the end of our class. I'm going to use these two giants as uh, and their and their positions on the, um, the their opinions regarding the end of days because they really represent the two major opinions that are discussed even though there are others and variations as counterpoints. So where the Rambam and, and Matthew can see reflected in their in, in, in the general association, the Rambam is generally associated with a rationalist, this worldly focus, which. I hesitate to even describe because it's so easily misunderstood and it's part of the reason why they burned the Rambam's books was because it was, he was accused of being overly Aristotelian and, that's not, and that was not correct. It was a distortion of the Rambam. Anybody who understands the Rambam realized the picture is much more complex. Uh, and Ramban, who let's say um, certainly had an immense admiration for the Rambam, lived a century later, but we associate more with the uh, with, with Kabbalistic uh, mystical properties in which, and, and, and on, on, on subjects such as miracles, angels, and, and the world to come, he has very different, very different views in the Rambam. Yes? It 
it brings up an interesting point, though, because uh, you said that uh, the, his books were burned for, for two reasons. One was because he was too down to earth. He was too Aristotelian. Okay, that's one way of putting it. You, uh, that's your formulation. Fine. He was too Aristotelian. Like, okay. Some of you may have thought he was too Aristotelian. Yeah. But then the other reason was because he uh, talked about Kabbalistic works. Like, in his, uh, like, one of the big things was uh, what he says in, in uh, Safer Yesterday at Torah. Yes. Those are very controversial, but those are almost complete opposites. So he's burned for two reasons. And they're not so, really opposites. Each one is its own particular topic. Really, to be understood as, as, as a sugya, each one in itself. Raspa. Raspa's um, probably, here's, if you like superlatives, if you like to like say the mostest, biggest, bestest, uh, neatest thing about the person, he writes more tshuvas, arguably, than any other rishon. Remember what we talked about, shilas and tshuvas? It's a whole genre of, of classic Torah literature of not Torah codes, but real life people breathing, living, uh, uh, with all their foibles and idiosyncrasies, asking Shilas on an individual, personal basis. And the, the, the <coughs> sock that they get in an answer, sometimes one, maybe the same question would yield a different answer if you're asking the question versus if you're asking the question. Because the, the POSIC obviously takes into consideration your own um, personality and background and needs. Um, so he wrote what these, the, the field are called Shilas and Shuvas, sometimes abbreviated to Shutim. In English, those are translated as responsa literature. Uh, if you've never spent time going through this, it's among the more interesting of, our, uh, of, of everything in the Jewish library because it's so human and real. And you feel like you, 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 it gives halacha a distinctly human face. And he wrote a lot of these tshuvas. And if you read them, if you really want to understand history, for example, you get a whole flavor of how people were back in the day. I mean, sometimes what we, what sometimes we lack in learning uh, sweeping uh, accounts of history, which necessarily, like in a class like this, I'm forced to do and other historians uh, do, where you get general ideas, but sometimes those are lacking the personal touch. And when you go back into a tshuva and you hear real people talking about their problems, I mean, there's a, there's a shayla I remember uh, from the Cairo Geniza that they discovered that about a father asking the posik, and I don't remember who the posik was, about his son who was preparing the laning for um, his bar mitzvah, but the son stuttered. And the father was concerned about too much pressure. What should they do? Do they have to conform to the minig of the community where the, the, the child should read everything? And uh, immediately, you know, this whole pathos comes to life. And you see, wow, it's not just us, right? And these are, these are issues that people have been struggling with reasonably and understandably for so many generations. So he, we have in our hands probably over 3,000 uh, chuvos that the, uh, that the Rashba wrote which is uh, stunning. Yesterday we saw, for example, the Marum of Rutenberg. Um, we have about 12, we have about 1,500, about half the number, and, and he was one of the great, uh, one of the great um, post-scheme of his time. So, generally, if you're reading the Rashba and you want to read the Tshuva, his characteristics, he's very concise. Uh, we also know that he addresses Jews from literally all around the world. Uh, people were aware that there's this giant living over in the Iberian Peninsula in Barcelona, and, uh, and they wrote him. And it paints a whole picture of what's going on in, in the world today. Um, it's, he's therefore gunning the door over the entire world's uh, Jewish communities, which is quite a rare phenomenon. Something that, for example, today we don't see as much, although maybe you could argue that maybe today we do because of the advent of technology, it makes things more, the word get out a little more effectively than once upon a time. But there have been only a few times in history when you can say, for example, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, Rabbi Yudha Nasi, was indisputably Vigalador in his day. Um, there are only a few figures like that you can point to. And Rash was one of them. So he wrote a Perush on Shas. Um, we haven't done it yet this year. I'll, I'll, we'll have to learn some Rashba. He wrote a book called Torah Sabais. I mentioned yesterday because the Ra'ah, his, his Talmud Chavir, Rav Aaron Alevi, wrote his own commentary on it. Um, the Rashba actually wrote a, a perush on a Gadata, uh, but we don't have that anymore, but it, 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 it um, figures into the commentary in the Ein Yaakov. Yeah, oh, yeah, you knew that. Good for you. 
Okay, yeah. So, so I mean, it, you know, the wisdom, the, 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 the learning is certainly has survived, uh, maybe not in the form that it was originally written. He, in terms of his own ideas, living in Spain, was extremely critical of what he felt was excessive study of philosophy. That was at that point already in the 13th century. Um, Spanish Jewry was uh, very assimilated. Lar large swathes of it were, were very, very assimilated. And they were also starting to, f to experience grave misfortunes. And he connected these. He said, we're suffering now because of the excessive focus on philosophy, which was their equivalent to secular studies. He, he poskined that only men only over 25 years old could study it with the logic that if, you, if you're 25 years old and you have your, uh, you're, you filled yourself up with the necessary Torah learning, you'll be strong and stable enough in Torah to be able to go and understand philosophy with the Torah um, grounding you. The Nitziv has the following point. He says that the Rambam, um, he criticizes the Rambam, the Nitziv. He says, there would have been less criticism on the Mishnah Torah had the Rambam worked with others instead of secluding himself for 10 years alone to do it himself. Whereas on the other hand, the Nitziv says the Rashba, he feels in many ways has a certain great greatness over the Rambam because um, it, he says the Rashba almost never contradicts himself. The Rambam, one of the things we know, one of the things that many of the super commentaries on the Rambam uh, are preoccupied with is trying to resolve the many contradictions. But the Rashba, the Nitzvah points out, almost never contradicts himself because he constantly consulted peers. And when you have constant peer review, you're more likely to work out the problems. Down in Egypt, Rambam's grandson, the Kabbalist Rabdavid, who we mentioned before, the Nagid, um, was unfairly imprisoned. And the Rashba, from abroad, from up, up in Spain, uh, raises the pidyon, pidyon shuin money to get him redeemed. I just, I mean, these, I, I, I try to, anytime I get a little nugget, little gem like that, and like throw it in there, like it just paints the picture of the Jewish world, the interconnectedness of the gedolim. Uh, there was, somebody asked me this morning about, about false messiahs, there, were, there was a, actually, later on, what seems to be a, a very accepted figure, a very established figure, a, a Kabbalist by the name of Avram Abu Lafia, but the Rashba opposed him. The Rashba felt that he had false messianic claims. Uh, he, um, he didn't like what he called his prophetic Kabbalah. Later on, as I said, history vindicates Rav, uh, Rav Avram Abu Lafia. The Chaim, Rav Chaim Vital says that uh, he cites him all the time, all over his book Shari Kedusha and elsewhere. Okay, sometimes that's true too, the figures that in their lifetime are controversial, like we saw the Rambam clearly, uh, history, history uh, vindicates them. The Rashba has many famous teachings, one of which I'll cite. He says, Tachlis Hayidiya, Leda, Shalom Neda. The goal of knowledge is to know that we won't know, which of course is much richer in the original, because it's, play, it's a play on words. In those five words, three of them have the same root. And of course, it sounds like a contradiction. The goal of knowledge is to know that we don't know. And of course, we understand that. Intuitively, the more you learn, the more you need to learn. Of the same generation, actually slightly younger than the Rashba, is a figure that we know very well, uh, the Ritva. Okay, Rav Yom Tov Ishbili. His full name is the answer 1250 to 1330. He was uh, 15 years the Rashba's junior and the Rashba's student but definitely part of this whole Masoira, part of the, the, the thriving Torah world of Spain. Uh, his Perushim on Shas, part of what he does is to reconcile the differences of many Rishonim. Often, let's say, Tosfos lays into Rashi, and it's the, you look up the Ritva sometimes to find a resolution, a Limutzchus on Rashi's view, and on one hand, and then Tosfos view on the other hand. There are different... Um, works out on some of the Masechtas where it's unclear if it's one Ritva or two different Ritvas or two different manuscripts. And sometimes they have something called the old Ritva and the newer Ritva. A little confusion over it, although he's a major name. Uh, and, and, and it's understandably reflected if you, um, Eli, you're not in my show in the morning, but um, we refer to the Ritva quite frequently. 
right, has been one of, one of, the, one of our teachers uh, to guide us through the, the, uh, the navigate the, minds, the minefield of, the, of, of Maseches Makos. The, um, a couple points with the Ritva. It's the Ritva is one of the older, oldest um, references that we have for the discussion on um, removing facial hair. He describes that back in the 13th century, there was, people did use what we would call today debil uh, debil debilatory powders and creams uh, to remove facial hair. Of course, you have to be careful. This is also Makos. It's the third paragraph of Makos gets into the major suki about what you can and can't remove. Uh, there are two different things. There's peos rosh, peos azak, the, the, the facial peos, which is the sideburns, that can't be removed. You always have to keep at least some, enough that you can hold on to. Uh, it doesn't be that long, but enough that you, you can hold on to. Um, and then there's the face, uh, which potentially, if you, as long as you have sideburns, and there's some question about how long the sideburns have to be, but let's say you, all, you have the sideburns at least beneath the cheekbone, which is the lenient view, um, you have to make sure that when, if you are removing other areas of facial hair, not to use a razor or razor-like instrument. And, um, and anyway, this is one of the early sources that you can get around the razor-like instrument altogether if you're using some kind of powder or cream, which are, Richard doesn't say this, but they, they tend to be, they are very effective in removing facial hair. Uh, if you keep them on a few extra seconds beyond what's recommended, it also tends to remove some of your face. Uh, the um, Ritva has, an, has some interesting chuvas. He uh, describes in what, no, excuse me, this is in his Perushan Bechoros, in the Bechoros, he describes the case of an androgynous, a person who has, androgynous is a person who has both set of genitalia as opposed to the tumtum, which has neither set of genitalia. So in this case, it was an androgynous individual who married a woman. Um, that's often, often depends on the area of halacha. You can look up this shear, it's more complicated. I have, I have a shear on the subject online. Um, but he describes an androgynous who, uh, and we generally treat them like a male in this case, they, uh, the person did marry a woman, fathered children with, the, with, with that woman. Um, I guess that marriage must have broken up because the Ritva then describes that that same person married a man and bore children to that man, was a father and a mother. And um, the Ritva Paskins that, unlike many cases of androgynous where we hold the person to be a suffix zahar, a questionable male, but a male nonetheless, uh, the Ritva calls this individual a biria bifne atzma, uh, a, a special category of life uh, not classified in any ordinary um, halachic category. These are the days of Urbenu B'chaye, um, B'chaye, one of the great, one of the great um, Chumash commentators. He dies, we don't know his birthday exactly, his death, he dies in 1340. He also was a student of the Rashba, so as you're filling in your charts and trying to get the primary names here, you would put him as well as an extension of the Rashba. Um, his commentary, have you learned, learned it at all? It's on our, it's on our, like we have our section, our Chumash, our Chumash section, so it's, it's, it's right up there front and center. Um, it's a compendium uh, that's similar, like just like the Ritva is kind of encyclopedic on the, on the whole scope of Shas, so, so Rabbeinu Machai is also has that feeling like encyclopedic knowledge of the Chumash, of the Torah. He, he divides it, there's sections on Musa that he starts with, usually he starts with a pasuk from Mishle, and he works out to derive the shot of a section of, of, of a pasuk. He'll bring Medrash, he'll bring Kabbalah. Uh, it's such an important commentary that he inspires about 10 other Perushim on his Perush, super commentaries we call them. That's down in Spain, these are the, some of the Spanish gadolim. Um, we met Rabbeinu Asher, the Rosh, in yeshiva circles usually pronounced as opposed to Rosh, to distinguish from the, uh, the, top, of the, the, the top of the person's body, we distinguish the Rosh, slight, slight soft O sound, Rabbeinu Yechiel ben, Asher ben Yechiel, who um, was, we said, some say maybe the last of the Balitosvos, or the student of, of the Maharamu was the last of the Balitosvos, uh, he lives approximately around the same period, 1250 to 1327. Um, he could trace his ancestry back to Rabbeinu Gershom. And it's kind of nice this way because, in a sense, we call Rabbeinu Gershom the father of Ashkenazi Jews, Ma'or Hagola. And um, in a sense, this comes full circle from the father to the redactor, the one who finally gets down the tradition in his commentary. Because that's probably the Russia's greatest claim to fame is that he 
is kind of takes the entire Messiah and puts it all together and is, is really seen as the uh, major receptacle of this, of this tradition of Ashkenazi Torah. Um, he, after the Maharam of Rutenberg was imprisoned and then seven years later uh, died in prison, so the Rush became the next Gadol Hador in Germany. Posik, um, when after the Rindfleisch massacres, uh, as we, we saw them, uh, among other people who perished was his friend and fellow student, the Mordechai. Um, after these massacres, the Rush survived, um, and he, it was the Rush who convenes a council to figure out, listen to this, Shaila, what do you do with all this property that belongs to people and there are no heirs to claim it because the entire family was wiped out wholesale? Father, mother, children, cousins, no Yorshim left. So what do you do with the what do you do with all the home and the goods now? These are questions that uh, our families had to, our, our family, the Jewish people has had to have had to deal with over over the years. The um, he becomes more and more prominent, his fame spreads, and the more famous you get, you know, in, in this world, I guess that's a good thing, uh, but in, back then, the more famous you were, the more at risk you became. Remember what the Germans like to do with ransoming their, uh, the Gedolim, and he figures he might become a victim of a ransoming scheme. So in 1303, he and his family pack up and leave. They only arrive in Spain three years later, in 1306. 1306 happens to be the same year that there's an expulsion from, from France. So you have this image, I have this image of the world at this time is just exploding. It's like one of those uh, minefields. You know, they go from Germany to Spain seeking refuge. And meanwhile, in France, they're, they're getting rid of the Jews. It's almost like no place is safe, although Spain seems to be a safe haven at the time. Now, he's very close with the Rashba, and they actually maintain a very warm, close correspondence between the two of them. And when he reaches Spain, so the Rasp is there uh, on the welcoming committee, Kabbalah's Panim, he greets him in Barcelona, he announces, here's the arrival of the Gadol Hador, says the Rashba. And it's indicative of, uh, generally we find Gedolim who don't see their own godless. Rashba would say, I'm not the Gadol Hador, the Rushes. And the Rush, of course, referred to the Rashba. And... Um, it's in uh, Toledo, Spain, that they that they convince him. Will you become our rebbe? And it's a nice, it's refreshing. We find the interplay between Ashkenazi and Sephardi Jews. You know, the Sephardi world had no problem taking a, an Ashkenazi rebbe at the time, and arguably the same could have been in, in the inverse. Um, they don't agree on everything, and one of the famous arguments between the Raspa and the Rosh deals with a uh, first thing in the morning. Al netilas yedayim what the purpose of the bracha that we say in the morning. According to the Rosh, the function of this prayer, this, this bracha that we say, is its preparation. It's a chona for tefillah. We wash in preparation for tefillah. Based on that, there's a logic to, that the last, say the bracha only after you've washed your hands the last time in the morning. In the morning, reasonably, a person could wash his, hand multiple, his hands multiple times First, to get rid of the to get rid of the ruach ra'ah through what the Yiddish term is negelvaser. But afterwards, you're likely to touch part of your body, a covered part of your body. Certainly, your, your feet, if you're putting on shoes, you'd have to wash again. Uh, some people then need to go to the bathroom again, depending on your nature. Um, in which case, you certainly would wash again. So, based on the rush, you would wait to say the bracha after you've you've said the last. You, you wash the last time before tefillah, since properly the bracha is preparation for tefillah. Hold on. The Rashba says the function of the bracha is because we become every morning a biri, a chadasha, we're a new being. We, as it were, experience a quasi-death at night, and we come back to life in the morning. And um, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's like the special bracha that the Kohanim have when they prepare for their avoda, avoda, so it makes sense to do it over that. So the truth is, is that in deference to both views, many poski, many achronim would say, suggest that you wash, you wait to say the bracha until you've washed last, and then you've satisfied the rush too. The rush does something interesting. He is the Ashkenazi Rav of a Spanish, of a Sephardi community in Toledo, and he maintains his minhagim as an Ashkenazi person. And it's an early precedent for something we'll find, and we find today very widely, where you have people living in one another's quarters, and you have an Ashkenazi shul, and a Sephardi 
shul in each community legitimately keeping, maintaining their own separate minhagim. I'll assert this, the majority of um, halacha is more or less agreed upon. Arguments between Ashkenazi and Sephardi and between other people are few on the major issues. On the big, big things, about 90% of halacha really comes down the same. You're not allowed to murder, don't steal. And like the basic things that are almost so obvious that we don't talk about, okay, those are the same. So why does it feel like we're almost different religions sometimes? People have different, or at least different practices, different hasbashol, people sometimes receive in different sects. It's not true. It's just that we differ on a lot of superficial things. So it's more apparent that we're different. And some of the differences make for, uh, you know, it's extremely difficult for, with Derek goes with, uh, this is, even though we have a lot of large, wonderful student body that, that come from different Sephardi backgrounds, but as a definition, it's an Ashkenazi place. So when the, the boys of Dab and Nusach, Edom and Mizrach are here for Yamim Norahim, for example, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, that's really hard for them. It's just so different. They have a hard time following. So it feels on the surface like it's such a different world, different community, but what they have a hard time following, most of that is just minhag. The different, the different tefillahs, the piyutim, the, the form of prayer as, as we're saying it. But the fact of prayer, that's, that's the same, and that, 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 that's, that's certainly agreed upon. In any case, the rush says that um, one should keep the Ashkenazi minhag, if you're Ashkenazi, and he, he, he elaborates, he says something that is quite interesting. He says that um, the Ashkenazi is actually more authoritative than the Sephardi. He explains, he says, this is because it was maintained continuously and traceably since this, the, the second temple was destroyed. And he says the Sephardi rituals, the Sephardi minhagim, um, don't have that same clear chain of Masaira. It's a point that there are Sephardi posts who take issue with the rush, exactly on this issue, but this, I'm describing the rush right now, so this is his point of view. We'll hear uh, in the modern day what Ravad Yosef has to say on some of these subjects. Clearly not the same, not, not in agreement. Um, but that was his view. Remember, we talked about the Colonimus family and being able to trace the roots, whereas the Sephardi world um, doesn't, doesn't have that same exact um, ability to, to trace things back. Um, still, like his friend, the Rashba, he also passed in Shilas from around the world. And, and even though maybe he was in the shadow of the Rashba, the Rashba seemed to be very much the, the proclaimed Gadol in his time. Uh, Rush was major. Um, we have his Chubas too, his Shilas and Chubas too. They were fewer than the Rashbas. Um, and when the Rashba dies, many consider him the new Gadol Hador. Slightly younger than the Rashba. The, um, the Rush has sons who are great Talmud Echachamim. Uh, two of them are, are more famous than the others. One of them is Rav Yaakov ben Asher, who's known to us, and we'll, we'll learn about him today too. Rav Yaakov ben Asher is known as the Balhaturim, or the Tur. Okay, one of the prominent names of the, of the Rishonim. Um, his other son is very famous as Rav Yehuda. And um, when they would walk in the room, when they would walk in the room, the rush would stand up. It's based in the Gemara and Kedushin. You know the halacha is when your parents walk in the room, once in the morning, once in the evening, you should stand up. Unless they don't want you to and you have to do what you're honoring your parents has to be according to their desire. Um, many modern parents actually don't like it when their kids stand up. But I think if you're, when you become parents, because I think you'd be doing your kids a big favor by, by having them stand up, not because you should have an ego trip, but because um, we have a hard time with reverence in our days, hard for people to respect anybody, but you get used to standing up when mom walks in the room and the Rebbe walks in the room or the teacher walks in the room, you start to realize, yeah, there are people on a higher level than me. I, I owe them some respect. So the, um, the Gemara takes up the issue, what about when your son is a Talmud Chacham? And even though it's arguable whether they, were, they exceeded the wisdom of the Rush, that's hard to imagine, the Rush being one of the great uh, figures of all time, but uh, he stood for them anyway, as a deference to their, to their greatness in, in Torah. The Rush writes on Shas. He has his perush in the back of the Gemara. He had the Gemara there. The Rush is major, um, usually right behind. Oh, oh, this is one of, one of these. This is the same Gemara I pulled out yesterday, but uh, I, I, I'm presuming that we have the Rush here. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, the Rush is, uh, looks like this 
Um, right, you see Rabbeinu Asher at the top. It's usually not the not the first perush after the text of the Gemara, but soon after that. Um, he also we also have another work called the Tosfos Harash, which I mentioned the other day as being his version of the Tosfos. That is sometimes different, often strikingly different than the version that we have in the, on the Daf of the Gemara, on the Tosfos Harash. He was, as I said, he's considered maybe the last of the Tosfos. And he has his own formulation of their um, of their analysis of the different sugyas and shas. Yes. Why does he change it? Why does he write in different stuff than we have in our regular That's what I. Tr- he doesn't change it. I described that this um, the tosfos, as we refer to them, were, uh, were actually a massive school of several hundred people who developed a shita, a whole approach to Torah. And as such, it was complicated, and it was recorded, and, 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 and inspired, but different people recorded it, different Bidoli recorded it, and therefore, there was, it was just like if everybody was sitting in a class typing up their own notes, and we took the best of the best, there'd be a few different versions of those notes, and they'd come out sounding differently. And if you talk about that over, uh, taking place over a process of a couple centuries, you can imagine why they would be formulated in, 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 with, with slight, very, I mean, given that that's true, and given the telephone operator uh, game possibilities that there'd be radical differences. There aren't so many radical differences, but there are nuanced differences. And sometimes, for example, when you can't figure out the tosos and the daf of the page, you look at the tosos of the rush or the tosos of the parents or the or one of the other variations, um, and oh, that's what it means. I, I, that's that's my experience. You, you go back and say, oh, okay, now I now I have some sense of it. Just hearing it in different formulation sometimes opens your eyes to it. That's a value value another valuable work. Um, unlike the Rambam's work, and the, unlike the Mishnah Torah, the Rush mentions all the major opinions. Remember, the Rambam just brings the Rambam. He also gives you the different background and the reasoning behind each of the, the, the opinions, and then he'll tell you, but I paskin, I paskin like this. Here's this view and this view, and in the end, this is how I paskin for this reason. So you, it's very upfront. You understand it. No, no, nothing up my sleeve. Very, very, very clear. And one of the reasons for its greatness, um, he does, and he's very clear about this. He heavily relies on the Rif and Tosfos. There's clear interplay between the Sephardi traditions, Ashkenazi traditions. Um, he brings the teachings of the Tosfos and the methods, the heavy, deep analysis, the the focus on Svara and reasoning and integrating all of Shas and analyzing every Tsugya, he brings his approach to Spain and it actually has a massive influence on the way the Spanish Jews start learning, the Sephardi Jews start learning uh, Tyra and Shas specifically. Um, yeah, it's a greater consensus as a result of this between the different communities. Yeah, in fact, so much so that the Rush becomes one of the, if not the, authoritative codexes of Halacha in Spain and across the North African Maghreb with Sephardi North Africa until the Shulchan Aruch comes around. So a little irony that you have this Ashkenazi uh, in Spain who, who's, who's, who's quite authoritative. Um, this is the, go ahead. And, and, and they follow the rush, uh, the rush themselves, not the riffs. Oh, so one of the reasons why it's very easy if you're Sephardi to look at the rough doesn't mean you necessarily accept his bottom line sock, but at least because he brings the riff and he brings the other traditions, He's, a, he's at least a view you could refer to. Uh, also in this period, um, it's interesting, so many Gedolim have, were born around the same time. Uh, I have 1250 as the birth year for the Ridfa, um, the Rush, and the Meiri. Oh, no, the Meiri is one year older. He's 1249. He dies in 1310. So the Meiri, who in my shir at least, we just learned the Meiri, the base of the Chira. Yeah? Okay, so the Meiri, Rav Menachem Meiri, lived in Catalonia. He was also Sephardi. Um, he, he descended from the second Ravid, the Kabbalist that we mentioned briefly. And um, here's an interesting statement. You could say if you want to understand who the Meiri is as opposed to the others, um, he's the only Rishon who reasonably, you can say the following, whose works can be read almost independently of the Gemara. 
And that's what he intended. That's how he wrote them. And when we, we did, um, at the very end of the first parak, we did a self-contained unit that you could ostensibly just learn the Me'iri, not having seen the Sugiya. And he elucidates and brings forward ideas. His style's very clear. I recommend it to students who are totally stuck on a Sugiya, can't figure out what the basic shot. And before, in desperation, pulling open an art scroll where they do your thinking for you, um, opening a Me'iri where you might see it and from a totally new light, and oh, that's what's going on in the Sugi. He is, as his name indicates, Me'iri. He is enlightening, often. The, uh, he does focus, his, his, the work is called the Base of Bechira, uh, one of the terms for the Base of Mikdash. The, it, it focuses on the bottom line of the sugya. You know, what is the actual Psaq Halacha? In fact, that was just a test question uh, on the test that we, uh, we corrected this morning in Gemara. How does the Mir understand the Psaq? The... Uh, it was stolen. One of the scandals of history. The Christians took our Me'iri from us. And much of it, not all of it, but much of it was in the vaults of the Vatican. What do they want their Me'iri for? How outrageous. How can they do this? You know, they say, okay, you can steal our, our, our Kalim of the base of Mikdash. We can get over it. But you can steal our Tyra. You can steal the wisdom of the Me'iri. So they, um, for centuries, much of it was unknown. In 1769, his, the base of Bechira on Megillah somehow was smuggled and revealed in Amsterdam. And it was, the Torah world was in heaven. The world went, word went out. We found the Me'iri on Megillah. And everybody rushed to try to get manuscripts and print it out. 1769. Um, other, others emerged in the 19th century and in the 20th century. So, it's a great commentary for today, for sure. We have, we have most of it. I think, I don't know about all of it. Uh, but then understandably through history, since it was only known about but not really studied, it would have a less, less of an influence on halacha. Not his fault. Um, another great work of the Me'iri, he writes an introduction to Pirkei Avos that can be seen as a forerunner of history books. We don't have so many history books at this point in history. Unless you want to call Divrei Yomim, the last book in the Bible, a history book, which it is of sorts, or the Tanaitic work that we refer to as Seder Olam Rava, Seder Olam Zuta, are quasi-history books, but the Meiri's introduction to Avos, which is elaborate, lengthy, and could be understood as, as, as a kind of a history. I, I actually made reference to it, um, it when we talked about Avram Avinu. We mentioned that Avram Avinu had Makarabd up to half of his generation of human beings in the world. That's an idea that I have from the Meiri. Uh, and we're going to see increasingly the Torah world will try to produce its own histories, Doros Rishonim maybe famously, in response to secular versions of history that distort the record. So there becomes an increasing need for, uh, for Torah personalities to set the record straight. Um, a younger generation now, uh, the Balaturim, who we just mentioned, lives from 1269 to 1343. He's the third son of the Rosh, Rav Yaakov ben Asher. He has two, let's say, most famous works. One is on the, on the usual daf of the, um, of the Mikros Gedolos, the classic compendium of, of commentaries on the Chomish, called the Bala Turim, appropriately enough. Tur, what does Tur mean? The Bala Turim, the Arba Turim. The Arba Turim is a row in the Choshen Mishpat. And there are four rows of three gems in the Choshen Mishpat. So he's the four rows. And the Baal Turim, since he wrote his more prominent work, the Tur, so in the Chumash he's called the Baal Turim, the one who wrote the, uh, the Turim. It's Kabbalistic, often bringing you uh, gematrias, which are not party tricks or cute fortlach, but rather reflect the inevitability of the Pshat. That this is, if the number equivalent comes out like this, it must be... Uh, divinely ordained. Um, he writes the tour, or more, more, more precisely, the Arba'a Turim. Um, and let's say one of its claims to fame is he's the first one to organize all of Shas, all of Halacha, in these clear categories that we know till today of Orch Chaim, Yoridea, Choshen Mishpat, and Eben Ezer. That's his doing. And it's the tours organization that who later adopts? The Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo. 
right? The Beit Yosef will take it. Well, the Beit Yosef is a commentary on the tour. Yeah, but in his name, I mean, he, right? The, the Marana Beit Yosef will actually adapt this exact style in his Shulchan Aruch and break up the halacha into these categories. Um, what does it mean? Orch Chaim, as the name suggests, it's the way of life. Arach Ara, right? It's the way of life. Orch Chaim. Um, so that means davening, brachos, Shabbos, Yantif. It's time. All halachas pertaining to time. Your dea is much broader and more diverse. It's what we call iser beheter, so kashrus and avelus and nida and a lot of smaller topics. Uh, the mitz, many of the mitzvahs of Tlius Ba'aretz, Kibudah the aim, honoring uh, honoring rabbanim, sacred Torah, safrus. The choshe mishpat is the financial deals with financial topics. Evan Ezra deals with family-oriented topics, who you can and can't marry. Um, the tour has some of the great commentaries. This is really what I'm giving you right now. If you don't know this, this is about as basic Judaism as you can get. Very, very core ideas. Um, the commentaries on the tour, what are called the Nose Kalim, like the, Le- the Levim who are carrying the, uh, the vessels of the, of, the, of the Mishkan, include the Beit Yosef, Rav Yosef Karo, the Bach, the same Bach that we have correcting our version of the Gemara, is the Bait Chadash of Yol Circus. The Darche Moshe is the Ramah. Of most Israelis, meaning almost everybody who figures prominently in, in the later halachic process in the Shulchan Aruch has a commentary, an equivalent commentary on the tour. Rav Yeshua Falk has a commentary called the Prisha Udrisha. He later comments on the Choshen Mishpat in his Sefer Meir Asinayim. I'll distinguish, there's another, his name is Rabbi Yeshua Falk, there's another gadol by the name of Yaakov Yeshua Falk from a few centuries later, the 18th century, that's called the Pnei Yeshua, that's a different person. Um, the focus in the tour, it's not comprehensive, he focuses on here and now halacha that we need in these years of Gaulus. So unlike the Rambam, for example, who deals with everything, and therefore you have a whole section on the base of Akira, on the base of Mikdash, and agricultural laws, so uh, all agricultural laws, so the tour only includes those topics that are relevant for our continued exile, and that's what the Shulchan Aruch follows as well. He follows a lot of the time his father, the Rosh, but he also you, you know, often refers to the Rif or the Rambam and other, other Rishonim. I'm changing gears now. After introducing uh, some of the great figures of the period, I'm going to talk about uh, some of the great, um, let's say, Gedolim from the period. Um, here are a couple of unusual names, one of them negative. Um, Avner Burgos. Notice I don't give him any title. Uh, when, usually when, when somebody appears who doesn't have a title, it's, well, not always, but sometimes questionable who they are. This, 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 this is a Russia. Um, he was what they call a philosopher, uh, and he converts. Christianity, and there's a debate about why they convert. Was it uh, out of conviction, or was it out of comfort? Was it out of uh, comfort? Um, they asked a 19th century Jew who had converted to Christianity, uh, Russian Orthodoxy in this case, um, and became a, a professor in university. They asked him um, why did he convert to Russian Orthodox Christianity? Um, was it out of convic- conviction or convenience, material comfort? And the, uh, very candidly, the, the, the man answered, uh, yes, I actually converted from Judaism to Christianity out of conviction. I'm convinced that it's better to be a well-paid lecturer in university than it is to be a poor Muhammad in the shtetl, the man said. So one finds that a lot. Did you follow that? Yeah, it's late on Thursday afternoon. Anyway, that's a pattern of history. It, it often just makes a lot of, um, let's say, fiscal sense, logistic sense to just convert, you know, and it doesn't mean that they really believed it. And when they go to Olam Haba, they suddenly uh, have regrets, maybe too late. He becomes Alfonso de Valladolid, the place where he's from, and winds up being one of the anti-Semites who writes anti-Torah polemics in Hebrew, based on knowledge in Shas and Midrashim. Uh, it's terrible. Uh, you know, it, it, they're defecting to the other side and using our own tools against us. Um, 
anybody who gives a class on Jewish history like this is entitled to have something that is maybe um, biased and irrational, where like I'm going to include now a personality who I personally um, love, and um, it's maybe disproportionate because maybe I should give a longer explanation of the Me'iri than I'm going to give the Kaf of but I have more to say on the Kaf of So you'll, you'll forgive, you'll indulge me in my, uh, in, in my fascination with this figure. His name is Rav Ishtori Aparachi. It might not even be his name. Ishtori, Ishtori, the man, Ish, Tor, Latur Ta'aretz, who tours Eretz Yisrael. Um, Haparachi might be a reference to where he comes from, the, the flower, Perach. He comes from Florence. Lorenza, flower, um, back in um, France, and um, Florence is in Italy, so Florenza, Florenza, what am I saying? Provence, no, it's, uh, okay, so I have to check that, I, I don't know, I, I edited this down, and I have it in my original notes that I have to look up again, the, uh, in any case, who is he? What he he's the author of a great book called the Kaftor Veferach, a totally unusual book, and it's called the first since the destruction of the Second Temple. The first Jew who travels to Eretz Yisrael, specifically with the idea of investigating the country, the borders, the cities, the rocks, the trees, the um, delineation of the tribes and their borders around the country. He's called Harishon Lechokre Eretz Yisrael, the first investigator of the land of Israel in the modern era. I mean, if you can consider the 14th century, the modern era. His dates are 1280 to 1355. Uh, he and his family are part of the expulsion from France in 1306. He's 26 years old. They leave, they're set traveling for years and years, refugees. Uh, we, we, he writes about all of this. At one point, they get to Fostat in Egypt and meet up with the descendants of the Rambam in Fostat, and he meets with Shmuel, the great-grandson of the Rambam, and they have a whole long discussion about the Easter of living in Egypt. Fantastic. I mean, all this is so rich and fascinating. You should look up. They put out, by the way, a newish version of the Kaftar of that's annotated and elucidated and really brings a lot of it to life. Um, I'm just giving you some of the highlights. He arrives in Eretz Israel 702 years ago in the secular date 1313. He describes Eretz Israel and brings it to life. He describes a, a country that's virtually empty. It's Muslim. 1313, you're in the early Mamluk period. The Crusaders have left definitively a couple decades earlier. There's small, tiny little Jewish enclaves and also Muslim enclaves here and there, but most of the land is just rotting. Nothing much going on. Like most good Jews, he tries to set up life in Yerushalayim. It's not feasible for him to stay there. So for the next 42 years until the end of his life, he bases himself in Beit Sha'an, the same uh, place where uh, the Philistines, after murdering the first king, Shaul, and his sons, they cut off their heads and hung them, hanged them up in Beit Sha'an. Uh, so they, they will live in Beit Sha'an. For, he'll live in Beit Sha'an. When I say bases himself there, he's traveling around a lot. I mean, seven years extensively all over the country. He travels back and forth between Beit Sha'an and, 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 and Jerusalem many times. Uh, he passes through Shechem and Shiloh. He describes everything along the way. It's a, a stunning accomplishment what he does. He has virtually impossible maps, if any maps, of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, no major, no, no advanced, sophisticated measuring sticks. And he gives proper measurements of Eretz Yisrael. You can't imagine how he does this. He's, he's a genius. He, there are poor or non-existent roads. He's got to travel on foot, on horseback when there's a horse. Often he doesn't have a camel or a mule. He certainly doesn't have a carriage. I'm going to quote him. He writes, Hutzrachnu l'chadesham lemelucha. We needed to renew there the, the um, regal monarchy of the Jewish people. We had to come back to Eretz Yisrael to remove from it the rust of the agricultural laws, the mitzvahs of Tluyos Ba'aretz. Beautiful language. He describes, because his goal is not just um, nostalgic, as much as we have huge nostalgia for Eretz Yisrael, it's practical halacha. 
we're coming back here, and we got to know, wait a minute, is this Eretz Yisrael for Shemitah, or maybe it's outside the land of, of Eretz Yisrael for Shemitah? Do we separate Trumos from Maestros on these crops or not? There are all kinds of issues at stake, and he is one of the earlier authoritative subjects, uh, uh, um, masters of these subjects. Um, he is the first in what we call modern times, meaning from his days until the present, there have been others who have taken up this mission, but he's the first to try to identify cities and villages and rivers and plants and trees in order to reinstate all these mitzvahs that are relevant in Eretz Yisrael. Why is that necessary? There have been Jews in Eretz Yisrael consistently, but they haven't kept track. It's not been a scholarly um, group that's based in this country, and as such, they're not based here, so we don't know. Our traditions over, uh, you know, is this really Beit Shemesh? Is this really uh, Tveria? We think so, reasonably, but uh, sometimes often questionably so. And there are halachic nafkaminas, especially uh, in, in determining certain cities where Ezra deliberately excluded from excluded them from the Kedusha of Eretz Yisrael for Shemitah purposes, like Beit Shan, like Ashkelon and Kesaria and other places that are not technically Eretz Yisrael in certain regards, so that's a pretty big nafkamina. He, um, his writings will have, it's a halachic sefer, uh, it's amazing what he knows. Uh, he clearly has some kind of virtual memory because it's probably, the, it's very plausible that there was not even a shas in Eretz Yisrael in these, in these impoverished times. Uh, and he writes everything from memory, and one of the diukim that the new version comes up with is that it's almost certain that he wrote it from memory because of the mistakes that he makes. Meaning we can learn from his mistakes that are reasonable mistakes for somebody who's writing from memory of books that he learned in his youth. They're, that, they're those kinds of mistakes. So it's, 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 it's uncanny what he accomplishes. He identifies ancient Usha. What was in Usha? No, no. What was in Usha? History test. What stood in Usha for a period of time? One of ten places that the Sanhedrin stood. Usha he identifies. Uh, he identifies Modi'in, Beitar, 180 locations in total. He writes, This seeking, this quest is beloved by me. Michipus Makomos Akochavim Berekia more than seeking out the, and uh, more complex for seeking out these stars in the heavens, even though that the issue today is similar to finding the stars in the skies, it's that complex. That's the work he's undertaken. Um, I have a fondness for this particular quote, and it's my caption on the main page of my, of my uh, website, that particular last one. The, uh, he often relies on Arabic names and traditions to identify ancient places, because the Arabs have been there, Lodoridoros. So if they call it a certain place, if they have a certain name, um, so Beitar, I just mentioned, is Bitin, in a place called Bitin, not far from modern-day Beitar, north of there. Uh, and the Chathamim Ferech is of the halachic position that that's legitimate. If there's Shimur Shem, we can accept that, even the halacha, not everybody agrees. I just point out for the record, the Chazunish and others say, we can't, just because the Arabs call it, that doesn't mean that that's the original place. Um, locations shift from the ancient world, among other things. Remember the Romans in their innovations brought irrigation, and what we know, for example, Akko, ancient, ancient Akko is about four kilometers north of, of later Akko, uh, Crusader Akko, for example, because by the time of the Crusaders, they had running water. They knew how to get the sweet water from the, uh, from the source. They didn't have to live by the original tell, by the mound where that was near the water source. So because of that, we, we can't really rely on the, on the Arabic traditions, uh, certainly for halacha. Um, the Kafir Mephirah comes to Yerushalayim, and he describes in great vivid detail the foundations of Harabais, the Temple Mounts. Um, he describes the walls and the gates, he said in those days there is no Western Wall that has any accessibility at least. They couldn't find it. There was no, it was covered at this point with buildings. Um, and I can show you pictures when we get to the modern era of what it looked like in the 19, photographs of the 19th century. Much of the wall, with two, two uh, exceptions, was covered over with debris, with, with garbage, because it was the garbage dump of the, uh, of the city, and buildings where people, people built homes. Um, when, the, when the Israelis will... Um, 
liberate the old city in the Six Day War, among the discoveries right in the early hours, right when the early hours are going in, they're going into the Mugrabi Quarter down there near what we call the Western Wall Plaza today, and they find houses built with toilets stuck up right on the coastal. They don't care. Toilets right there on the coastal. And even secular soldiers are, are appalled by what they discover. Anyway, in these days, the Captain Feferk writes, um, you couldn't get to the coast cell, so they davened on the other side in the eastern wall, what's called by Shari Rachamin, which you could look at from the, facing the Mount of Olives. That was the place um, that Jews davened once upon a time in the days of the Captain Feferk. Some really colorful picture, figures in history. Um, we'll talk one more, one more figure in history, and then we're going to conclude talking about the Black Death. Uh, the last figure I'm going to talk about today is the Ralbag, or Levi Ben Gershon, sometimes called Gershonides, 1288 to 1344. Uh, he writes a very famous commentary, co controversial commentary on the Torah and some of Navi. He has a commentary in Shas. He also has major works in philosophy. Uh, one of his points that's debated and criticized by later Poskim, he says, Shir Shirim, the Song of Songs, he understands as a dialogue between the mind's logic and the neshama. And he says the mind tries to express its desire to, to reach a certain wholeness through wisdom and then to li uh, live eternally through the power of the neshama. But it raises all kinds of issues, and some critics suggest that it shows too much of a philosophical influence. He has, his book is called Milchemes Hashem, which is a book on philosophy. And among the great later sages to reject it, Rav Chazdai Kreskis, the Barbanel, the Maharal, the Vilnagon, don't like it. And others, others, others also have problems with it. Um, especially, he has an idea that the world was not created entirely yesh me'ayin, something from nothing, which is against Chazal. Uh, he calls, he says it was created from an element called tohu v'vohu. What's interesting about the Ralbad, with all of these controversies, he's often included in the Mikos Kedolos Anach, as you go, you open up a regular Nach and you have the Rashi and the Mitsudos and the Radak, Radak and you have the Rabag a lot of the time. So clearly it, wasn't, it was partly accepted and partly not. Uh, totally different though. He was a man of many hats. He was... Uh, by the way, he... Yeah. yeah uh, some, uh, another point, excuse me. I skipped another point of controversy. He is a, an approach to biblical mir miracles that we would call Aristotelian meaning rejecting really a notion of supernatural in this world, and uh, some say it's close to Kfira. That's how controversial he was. In any case, um, another accomplishment, he was uh, a mathematician and an astronomer who was world famous. And he had new ideas, he had, he had pioneering ideas. He's the only astronomer before modern times, we now know, who estimated more closely, more accurately, the distances between stars Previously, was, they thought it was very, very, you know, you look at the stars, it looks like it's a small distance. So he said, he, he, he somehow knew that it was 10 billion times greater than previously understood. Uh, in fact, he's, such, he's so honored in secular science today, the secular astronomers uh, have a crater on the moon that they've named for him. They call it the Rabbi Levi uh, crater on the moon, after the Ralbach. And you can't say the same about yourself. Yet, yet, maybe one day. Yeah, go ahead, Aaron. That's a good question. It sounds like it, but I, not being a Aristotelian myself, it'd be, I, I'd be far-pressed out, out of my depths to be able to, make such a, to answer such a question. On October 1347, according to the main view of history, I'm summarizing what you could study. You can read uh, Barbara Tuckman, Tuck, uh, uh, Tuckman's book, Through a Distant Mirror. According to most view, views in 1347, we now know this in retrospect, I didn't know this at the time, merchant ships traveling from China carried rats. And on the rats, the rats carried fleas. And the fleas had the strain carrying the bubonic plague. We now know this. So, isn't hindsight wonderful? Like, oh, that's how it happened. They didn't get this at the time. It, actually, today there's a theory that the carriers were not fleas but birds. They speculate. Okay, that's, that's not our issue right now. I'm just bring that out for the, for the record. We're not quite sure about the Black Death. But this is the story of the Black Death. Whatever happened, the plague ravaged the entire world. The Eurocentric world likes to focus on what happened in Europe. And Europe was absolutely devastated, but it wasn't just Europe. For the next several years, it peaks in 1350. 
we don't know much about this time in history because everybody was busy dying. Uh, they estimate, they don't have clear records, somewhere between 30 and 60% of Europe's population died. Right, right. Entire villages, cities wiped out. Um, it reduced, again, this is estimated, maybe more even, the world's total population, they think, started at 450 million and went down to 350 million in the course of the 14th century, like in a few years, really. People just died. Um, that's the worst of it, but it actually re returns periodically until the 19th century. It's only finally contained in the 19th century. She's talking about a half a millennium of, of, of bubonic plague. Now, we understand from our historical perspective, the ultimate calamity is what? No, no. Right. There's no, every other calamity is an extension of the Chorban. That's our view. Okay. Uh, what I'm about to say is not a contradiction. In raw numbers, the Black Death is the biggest disaster in recorded human history. And it's all the Jews' fault. Okay. As we're about to say. The trauma is compounded because nobody understands what's happening in the process. They don't understand where it's coming from. They can't figure out how is it spreading so rapidly. How, you know, cities would hear what would happen, but then they'd quarantine themselves and they'd still get the, the, the they'd still get the bubonic plague because it's carried by some kind of critter, some kind of uh, other, uh, they didn't realize that you didn't have to see the people to catch the disease. Um, it takes on a mystical quality. The doctors, the local heal healers certainly can't explain it. And as we said, the Jews are blamed, and it's just the same old anti-Semitic um, canards, lies that are that are surfaced now. But now, with the uh, with the new uh, deviousness, there is a, these conspiracy theories. The Jews are some kind of an international gang rising up to to, to destroy all of humanity, to conquer all of humanity. Um, it's. Uh, supported by the understanding that Jews are still international um, merchants with connections unlike any other nation in the world. We are, we have a, a network literally of people from around the world in trade. We talked about that. That's what Jews specialized in because you could you could live over in Persia and travel up to the British, oh, not, no longer the British Islands because the Jews were expelled from there, but let's say up to France and you could spend Shabbos and you could, you could speak Hebrew, and you could somehow connect and actually trust each other to do business with one another from across the world. So the, the non-Jews paid attention. They took notes, and they saw all this. They said, oh, the Jews are responsible, because they didn't know how, how else to explain the Black Death. Um, they imagined them, and these are some of the stories, and it's laughable, but really we, we shouldn't laugh, we should cry. They said the Jews, how did they do it? They, they were agents of, of disaster carrying special secret instructions for how to poison the wells in those strange black boxes that they wear. And that's where the black plague instructions tell, teach them how to poison the wells. Jewish communities are, murders, are murdered en masse in retaliation. You just wiped out. You murdered our family, so we're going to murder all of you, was the rationale. Um, now, of course, Jews also die in the plague, but there's theory that they, di they died in smaller numbers, maybe because they had better hygiene. We washed a lot. We listened to the machlokas between the Rashba and the Rush. It's funny how things are kind of backwards now, where uh, Jews tend to have more sides than I don't know if that's true. Yeah, sure. I mean, in America... We Let's not debate it now. Let's not debate it now. We'll do it another time. Um, now, the Jews will try to establish their innocence. We were nowhere near the wells. So then they, they blamed the Jews. They said, okay, yeah, but you thought negative thoughts. And that's why. That's what happened. And remember, these are highly superstitious times where it didn't have to be rational to make sense. Once you established the, 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 the conclusion that the Jews done it, so then there was really no disproving it. Among other things, what one finds, post-Kim now, take an ancient minhag and say that... Um, we should do it outside of time, outside of town, once a year. Which minhag am I referring to? That we should we should be very careful how we go about doing it. Tashlich on Rosh Hashanah, go outside of the view because they're going to think that we're we're throwing poison in the wells. Now, um, 
there's a war declared against the Jews openly, covertly. It's pursued across Europe. And, and this is when they change the custom from the bread, right? To actually just prayers for Tassel? Yeah, also true. Um, most ruthlessly than anywhere else is in Germany. Germany, which some say has a dean of Amalek, some others deny that. Um, all across what they call, they still call it the Holy Roman Empire, that's what Europe is considered, but Germany's the worst. worst. So in two years after the outbreak of the plague in 1349, the Jewish communities in Mainz, Cologne, and then uh, over 2,000 Jews in Strasbourg are murdered. 1351, um, which is already after the major ravages of the plague, there are 60 major communities destroyed and 150 smaller communities destroyed, wiped out, all in retribution. Now, one of the, one of the uh, proud moments in our history is with this huge pressure now to convert, because now you don't have, if you convert, maybe you, they won't blame you and kill you. Um, we don't, listen to this, we, there's no recorded instance of any group of Jews converting to Christianity during this period. Talk about fortitude, spiritual fortitude. In, in the words of one of the Jewish uh, contemporaries to survive the Black Death, Jews went to their deaths as they're being murdered, singing joyously, as if they were um, off to a wedding. They, they would be murdered rather than to succumb to a conversion. Yehari Valyavo. Um, keep this image in your mind of the Jews singing, going off to the wedding, to their deaths. Sadly, it's going to recur. Uh, we're going to find it in Tachvatat, in the Shoah, and other times. Now, one of the offshoots of the plague is it exposes the church as being morally bankrupt. Clergy would close their doors. Their parishioners would be out dying and begging to give last rites. That's, that's what they do, you know, last confessions. Please come preach, uh, Mr. Priest, uh, priest man. And they would avoid them. And of course, you know, they, they emerge as they really are, as hypocrites. Uh, they neglect basic funeral duties that they're supposed to supply, but they don't want to risk their own lives. Um, their doctrine, the church doc, doctrine is hypocritical. The priests we know take vows of poverty, even though they pursued wealth through the indulgences that we described. They take vows of celibacy, uh, and meanwhile, they had wives, they, had wives, they, were, they were profligate, they, 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 abused, they raped, they abused people. There's now a new strain of religious zealots that come out in the world because there's almost an anarchy. Governments can't police. They're afraid to go out and catch the plague themselves. So now there's new religious zealots who go out called the Brotherhood of the Flagellants. And it's, it is what it sounds like. Um, they don't care about any church authority or any civil authority. Uh, they would beat themselves and one another and they would go rampaging through villages, whipping, whipping up a storm, literally. Um, they called it a penance. If you whip, maybe that'll whip, you'll whip the plague out of people. And of course, they would be at the forefront of many of the anti-Semitic attacks. The one, not quite bright spot, but let's say uh, I can end on a, on a slightly positive note. Um, there's one area in Europe, for only Hashem knows why exactly, um, that seems to avoid the worst of the plague. Let me know this. It's a place where the Jews eventually gravitate to, Poland. Somehow, Poland is spared. Not entirely, but more than, more than other places. And um, we see now in the 1300s a, a start of a process that's going to pick up some steam in the coming centuries of Jews gradually moving east and gravitating to east. There's still, we haven't heard about a major Jewish community, community in the Eastern Europe. Um, Western Europe will slowly decline as a Jewish center. Spain and France and Germany will decline. Um, in fact, in 1264, it was the first time that Poland formally invited Jews. Why do you invite Jews? Because it's usually good for the economy. Um, in 1333, Casimir III renews this invitation. Um, and gradually, the Jews will go there. In fact, the Jews assumed that they would remain there for thousands of years. And that's why they darshaned the name um, Poland. They, they said, Po-lin. Here, we will stay. We will sleep. We will, we will, we will, we will recline. So we'll, we'll see the, the great Jewish communities of Poland as they start to emerge. But that's, that's coming up. Um, we're actually closing out the period of the Rishonim, and next week, Bezras Hashem, brace yourselves, we're going to talk about the Spanish Inquisition and finally expulsion.